This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and it's Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirate Save the Wealth, with a Robin Mob, a Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And that means I'm Mob, and this is our... 52nd episode. Yes, the significant episodes are continuing thick and fast, so we will now have a, uh, an episode for every week of the year. There you go. Yes. But yes. the Shenandoah's voyage was in fact 13 months, but we'll, we'll just gloss over that. Oh, yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> Speaking of that, the Shenandoah is back in the, Liverpool. The Shenandoah is back in Liverpool, and the crew has been, has been paid off, so, um, there's... Well, well. Paid off to the t- to the uh, magnificent tune of uh, one dollar for every seven. Oh. Well, no, I, no, no. I, I, I think I think Mr. Bullock probably turned up with some cash. Remember, I, I think they, they got paid out in the end. And um, the the first night on shore, um, William Whittle, the executive officer, and uh, Charles Lightning, whose um, journals we have uh, relied on so much during uh, the course of uh, the course of. Um, our podcast, they went to see to the Queen's Theatre in Liverpool to see a play or opera or musical thing called Colin McKenzie, which was obviously so successful that we could find no mention of it. Absolutely none. So Colin McKenzie, as far yes. as I can work out, is, uh, if, if you go to Wikipedia, there was a Colin McKenzie, a Sir Colin McKenzie, who um, founded a wildlife sanctuary here in uh, Australia. But the big problem with that is is he wasn't born until 20 years after the uh, oh, Civil War well, ended. So it's not him. Well, now, now, wasn't there somebody else who was the first surveyor of India? He or was, the man who mapped India. Now, I guess that could ma- be made into a highly entertaining piece of theatrical entertainment, but that's about as good as we've got, I'm afraid. Oh, if, if, if anybody has heard of an old-timey play called Colin McKenzie, the, the problem is, of course, again, if you look on Google for Colin McKenzie, um, Peter Jackson did a fake documentary about a New Zealand filmmaker called Colin, Colin McKenzie. McKenzie. So, and, and that's all over the, <laughs> the first two or three pages of, uh, of Google, and we haven't been able to separate. And, and, and we kind of stopped there. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so the crew actually took what's called uh, French leave, didn't they? Which is, um, well... Or, not, or as Charles Lighting would say, a French leech. Yes, yes, we, yes. last week he, he, he'd miswritten that in his journal. But French leave is essentially just uh, leave you're not meant to be taken. Yes, scarpering. Whereas I think a French leech would be, I don't know, you turn up at somebody's place and you, you speak French at them for, you know... Yes. Yeah, it doesn't have quite the same ring. Oh, and uh, Mob... Just before we continue, I really think that I should uh, reference uh, Jeff Richardson, who commented on our Facebook page last week, because uh, we mentioned that when the Shenandoah entered the Irish Sea, they put up some flares, they put up some rockets. We were wondering, why would you put up some rockets? And um, Jeff Richardson answered, and he said... The rockets that are referred in signalling the ship's entry into port are Coston flares, a device for signalling at sea, that were invented and developed by Martha Jane Coston, a woman inventor born in Baltimore, Maryland, and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 
Costin flares were used extensively by the US Navy during the Civil War. They proved particularly effective in the discovery and capture of Confederate blockade runners. Ooh, well, during the unit blockade of southern ports, Costin flares also played an important role in coordinating naval operations during the Battle of Fort Fisher in North Carolina on January the 13th to 15th, 1865. Costin flares were used for surf life-saving and wrecks and rescues until very recently, being attributed to saving thousands of lives. And although Martha Jane Costin died in 1904, her company, later called the Costin Signal Company and the Costin Supply Company, remained in the business until at least 1865. So thank you very much, Jeff. It, it's always fantastic to get, um, you know, to get feedback from our listeners. Thank you very much. So uh, the... Temporarily on board the ship while well, the uh, the British authorities work out what the heck to do with the Shenandoah and its crew. Yes. Because if there are any British subjects on board, then uh, they have broken yes. the uh, Neutrality Act. And that would mean that they are pirates. Well, it would also mean that England would be on the hook for large sums of money. Yes. And, uh, spoilers, that's actually what happened. So... Uh, what the British government decide to do is they need to work out if anyone on board the ship is, in fact, a British subject. Yes. And that could include, uh, well, by this stage, the, the British, the, the map of the world had quite a few pink bits, didn't it? Yeah, well, they, they could be Australian. They would have been British subjects. Yes. They could have been South African. They yes. would also have been British subjects. Um, Canadians. Canadians would have been British subjects, yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, and, and also large swathes of uh, tropical islands here and there, bits of Africa and all sorts of other places. People from India could technically be British subjects. There's a whole lot of grey areas here that... Um, this was going to be solved by a a very, very strict test. And what was that test? What did they do? They asked them if they were American or not, or if they were Southern or, Southern or not. That's correct. So the, um, the captain of the Donegal went on board, and the entire crew was lined up, and he simply went along the line, and he asked each of the crew members, are you a Southerner? And apparently they all it all said yes. In in a vague approximation of a southern accent, yes, they, they all said that they were they were southerners. So there were Hawaiians on board. Yes. There were definitely uh, Lascars. Las, there were Lascars. There were uh, definitely some Australians. Yes, yes, um, and uh, quite I, a few British subjects. Lots fact. of Irishmen, given how much they've been fighting and getting drunk. Yes. yes. Oh, sorry, me and Michael of Irish descent. We're allowed to say that. But essentially, everybody on board um, swore blind that they were, in fact, good old boys from the South. And so uh, the captain wrote back to the government saying, I went on board, I asked them all, and there are no British subjects on board. That was the full extent of trying to determine where they were from. Uh, well, uh, excellent work from that chap, although, um, yeah. Now, now um we should do a bit of, bit, bit of housekeeping here, Michael, because this, oh. will, this will probably be our last regular. Um, yes. You know, and, and I have to say, you know, as, as, as you pointed out earlier, regular, given that we've had 52 episodes in 13 months, regular has meant missing, well, four episodes along the way. But I, I still think 52 episodes in 13 months is a pretty good, pretty good haul. Um, we probably will have a couple more episodes, but I think they will be as something interesting comes up. So well, we've, uh, we've, we've, we're going to have an episode about the Alabama claims. Yes, yes. From, um, yes. And then uh, we'll have a guest on for that, hopefully. Yes. But uh, that, that depends on when we can arrange a guest. Yes. 
Um, and then, yes, there's a couple of other things that could be on the horizon, like, for example, the uh, diaries yes. that have recently come to light of Dabney Minor Scales. One yes, of the, yes. Uh, one of the officers. And I, I think Barry Pronk. Prompton would probably be very keen to uh, come and talk about that um, mm-hmm. sometime. So, so yes, yeah, so, so there might be the, the odd future episode, but um, this is the end of the, the regular Shenandoah run. So um, I guess what we need now to do is, is do a, our particular version of um, you know, the end of Animal House, where all of the all of the characters' uh, fates are laid out in a, uh, in, a in an epilogue. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the, the crew of the, the, the officers of the Shenandoah are scattered to the four winds. And I have to say, when I say, um, yeah, what happened to them, really, um, it's only the officers whose, uh, whose eventual fates, fates are known. Well, we do know that uh, there was one of the uh, crew was buried in Melbourne. Yes, uh, William Kenyon, I yes. believe. Yes, yes. So he, he is really the only, I think, um, uh, crewman who's, uh, whose eventual fate is... Uh, that we know known. about here in Australia, yes. Yes, I know. Um, but let's go back to the officers, because we do actually have quite a bit of uh, documentation about their their eventual stories. Uh, the simple answer for all of them is that none of them immediately went back to the United States, because it was a bit hot for them. Uh, it, it was it was very hot, yes. So they had made themselves uh, very unpopular. Um, so um, now, Captain Waddell... Um, he basically stayed stayed in England, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a little bit unknown. He, he stayed in England for quite a number of years, and he must have done some work because he didn't have a whole lot of money. Uh, but um, and, and he was also the one person who hung around um, Liverpool, basically, you know, at Her Majesty's pleasure in case any questions needed to be asked because uh, he was a captain. Now, but uh, Waddell eventually did return to the United States in 1875, and oh, I've, I've actually got a book whose pages I can riffle. So um, I'm reading this from from Angus Curry's, which the officers of the CSS Shenandoah, which oh, we've, we've used book, many yes. fine yep. book, which we've used many times in the past. Um, although in, in recent weeks we've been more into the the original documents, but um, so. But that's fine. So um, after his return to the United States in 1875, so nine years after the end of the war, Waddell took work as a captain in the Pacific Mail Line operating between Melbourne and New York. And, of course, Melbourne was a town where he was very popular. And I believe the the first time he, he docked a ship in Melbourne, there were crowds lighting the oh, key well. and they, <clears throat> they gave him a big, uh, a big, a big clap. Um, now, OK, so... Uh, operating between Melbourne and New York, the steamship firm deliberately employed former Confederate naval veterans in the hope of attracting Southern customers. Well, ah. I think that would probably work. Then that's a bit odd that they left from New York, but never mind. Uh, okay, well, you've got, to, you've got to leave some somewhere. Uh, this type of Confederate commercialism became increasingly common in the South. Um, did I say what? This is page 304 of Angus Curry. Um, on his maiden voyage from California in September 1876 and in command of the 4,000-ton San Francisco. That's an interesting name for a ship, given that he planned at one point to attack, to attack the city. Yeah. Uh, Captain Waddell was involved in a serious accident. Off the coast of Mexico, the mail packet struck an uncharted reef which left a 50-foot hole Yee. in the hull. Captain Waddell managed to get the ship within three miles of shore and safely evacuate the 420 passengers and was later cleared of any responsibility in the mishap. There were, however, claims that the North Carolinan was responsible for the incident. He retired from the Pacific Mail Line some years later 
and was employed by the Maryland State Fishing Force during the 1880s. In this later role, he commanded patrol boats with the task of protecting the state's maritime interests. So that's the oyster beds. I yes, the oyster beds. It's, yes. I, I believe it's the Maryland Oyster War or something of that nature. Oh, nation. so he, he was engaged in another war before he died. Well, a, a the war. Oyster war. <laughs> the, the, the oyster war. The oyster war. You know, I can see him catching those uh, those oyster poachers and burning their boats. Uh, you know, funnily enough, funnily enough, serving in this capacity, Captain Waddell helped defeat a group of armed legal oyster fishermen known as the Oyster Pirates. In a night encounter and firing a howitzer mounted oh, on his boat... Wow. Gee, the um, the Maryland State Fishing Force was obviously a well-armed <laughs> yeah, bunch of men. Uh, Captain Waddell attacked an illegal fleet. Three of the illegal oyster boats were run aground. One was sunk and three other vessels were captured in the encounter. And I, I believe they were in fact Burned, burned. So I can imagine. Wow. So um, I can just see him enjoying that because he never really got to come to grips with having a warship and getting to use it in anger, did he? During uh, the, yes, yeah, yeah. During the Great well, Civil War, although so, quite possibly the howitzers they were only firing warring shots. Who knows? Because it doesn't mention. It does sound like a bit of overkill for for oysters. Well, you you <laughs> can oysters, but there you go. You cannot say. That the Maryland State Fishing Force did not pick the right man for the job. Yes, yes, yeah. they knew what they were getting. Didn't they? <laughs> they knew what <laughs> they knew what they were getting, and they got what was written on the tin. Yes. So um, now, now, of course, um, uh, Waddell also uh, wrote his memoirs later in life. I believe he wrote them in uh, when he was uh, sixty-three, mm-hmm. and we um, have actually uh, quoted his memoirs a number of times throughout the podcast. Uh, we, we've used them quite a number of times, but uh, and, and we'll get to this a bit later. Uh, there was a bit of a feud between. Waddell and the rest of the officers after the mm, war. Yeah. Waddell having a feud, who'd have thunk it? Um, <laughs> which, which is why, while, it's, while Waddell's memoirs are a very interesting book, he does somewhat give the impression that he managed to sail around the world in a ship without any actual officers. I, th- I think he mentioned Sidney Smith Lee at one point when, you know, Captain, um, uh, when, when um, they have the, the crossing the line festivities. And I think I think Whittle is mentioned, but no other officer is actually mentioned by name. So I think he decided. Yes, he, yeah. he kind of draws a discreet veil there. Yes, he only um, he only ran into the uh, to the others um, as far as I can tell once after the war. Yes, and that was when they were changing trains at Annapolis, which you had to do, I think, to go to Washington D.C. Well, and, uh, even though the greeting was very warm, unfortunately. Um, a couple of weeks later, a newspaper article appeared with a letter from Waddell. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, I'm afraid that was that was enough to sour then relations for uh, a very long time. Um, yeah, it was in the Petersburg Daily Press, this, this letter. And even though there'd been that very warm greeting in the letter, Waddell stated that the officers of the Shenandoah at the time when they learned from the Barracuda that the war had ended had set a bad example for the crew and their conduct was nothing less than mutiny. And apparently Waddell um, denied in public that uh, put the portions of the letter, which I think means I wrote most of that letter but not the bits you're referring to, which I think is a pretty lame uh, way of excusing yourself. Yes. Um, they had little contact with uh, with. Waddell after that. Well, I, I think, yes, you would. Uh, if, if he's accusing you of mutiny, you would perhaps 
yeah. uh, shun him from that moment forth. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, these officers ran into uh, Waddell at Annapolis, which is um, near Washington, D.C., so that obviously means eventually they all got back to the America as well, but not initially. No. So um, after they went and went to the theatre and saw the mysterious Colin McKenzie, yeah. whatever, that, whatever that was, <laughs> uh, Whittle went to Paris and hung around there for a couple of weeks. Well, that sounds like fun. I, yeah. hope, you, I hope you got some nice food and Just, uh, went, went to see some you know, other... Well, un, there's, un, there's un, other theatre you can go and see yeah. in Paris. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, there are. doesn't star Colin McKenzie. Um, he then had to work out what to do because mm. he didn't think he'd be able to go back to the uh, back to America. His letters from home relieved concern about his family, so that, yes. that was good for him. But they advised him not to dream of returning to Virginia. Okay. So what he did instead was uh, he had to make a living somewhere else. So while... Um, the father of one of the midshipmen, um, there was a midshipman on board called Oris Brown. Yes, who, because he did, did not write an amusing journal, we, we've somewhat neglected, yes. uh, I, I have to say. But his father, who'd served in the Confederate Army, went to Washington to try and get pardons for his son and Lee and Mason and Whittle. Okay. And unfortunately, um, he was told by the president and many leading men that uh, the Shenandoah's officers were pirates who can never come back. Okay. So he's got to work out what he's going to do. So they looked for uh, possibilities for employment in uh, England, France, Mexico and Argentina, and they decided that Argentina had the best prospects. And they left um, in January 1866 and went to Argentina. Well, and... What did they do there? Well, interestingly, before you talked about how um, there had been this uh, these Confederate businesses that were set uh-huh. up to attract uh, Southerners and so on, um, just like, say, in a future war where um, senior officers of a certain army, I think, went to Argentina. Went to Argentina, yes, yes. It yes. appears that a whole lot of Confederate officers went down there to uh, lie low. Try their stuff. luck. Yes, yes. And, and try their luck. So Lee and Oris Brown uh, got... A job on a sheep ranch. Okay. And um, Whittle and Mason went um, sort of further inland where they decided that they were going to set up um, a what's called a truck farm. They okay. bought 50 acres of land and they were going to raise chickens and cows, cultivate a large garden and sell fruit, vegetables, eggs and butter. And a truck farm yes. is a farm that you would have on sort of the edges of a city. Yes. And you'd grow perishable fruit yes. and vegetables and things and send it in every day on a truck. Yeah. I, now, I think these days uh, the meaning is actually truck as in conveyance. But I think back in the 19th century it was truck as in uh, perishable stuff. Truck, truck, truck meant stuff. So you mm-hmm. were selling stuff into town. Yes. And well, I think you'd put it on a hand truck and you, push you, it into town. You yes. probably would. Yes, you are. Yeah. Pro- yes, because yes, there were hand trucks before there were brum brum trucks. And they decided that they were bound to make money. Oh, why, why do I have a bad feeling about this? <laughs> because there were no truck farms in the area. Maybe that says something. Maybe <laughs> that says uh, the lettuces are go to grow. I think this is yet another story of sailors, you know, yes. all the sea on shore. Yes. Yes. In the meantime, uh, this Dr. Brown, who seems to have been somewhat influential, was trying to get pardons for them. 
and eventually got three senators, a congressman, and some prominent Virginians on board, and got them pardons in September 1866. Okay, okay, so so obviously pretty quickly then. Yes, yeah, yeah, really. That, that, that that's... Uh, eight months. Yeah, eight months, and, and so After did, they arrived in Argentina. Yes, and so uh, let me guess: did 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 Mason and Whittle say, "Oh no, our truck farm is doing wonderfully," or did they? Um... Um, it appears that uh, as soon as they got use of that, <laughs> they um, they left as quickly as they could. So by the middle of eighteen sixty seven, Mason and Brown left. Whittle and Lee had to stick around a bit longer to dispose of their property. And it yes. appears that they had a lot of trouble um, selling off their oh, truck farm. Oh, dear. I, I guess, I think, I think probably all their Shenandoah money went on that truck farm. Yes. But, uh, but there you In go. the end, he had to work on a river steamer to raise money to defray my expenses. So, okay. yes, I, I don't think the truck farm quietly worked out. So they didn't actually uh, get back to uh, the United States until December 1868. Okay. And then um, he finally got... And this this would be a very cinematic scene, I think. Um, he he stopped in Baltimore to get the documents pertaining to his pardon, which he'd probably want. Yeah, yeah, he'd yeah, yeah. want to be arrested yeah. and hanged. And then he finally arrived at his father's house on Christmas Eve. Oh, that's nice. 18, 1868. That's very nice. Yes. Now, because he was he'd, uh, often in his journal, he was writing about how concerned he was about uh, his father and yes. his family yes. and so on. So he's had the um, the family reunion. Um, he did actually get married, and we presume he got married to his darling Patty. Yeah, except we, we did know that Patty was it was a nickname; it wasn't actually her name. Yes. But, but anyway, he got he got married really quite soon after that, and mm-hmm. so let's uh, let's just presume it was Patty. And he also then uh, had to try and find work. And I believe he, he stayed in the um, he stayed as a, as a as a sailor or a ship's captain. He did. So he ended up um, uh, he got a position with the Old Bay Line in Norfolk, Virginia. Yep. And he was a captain of um, many of their passenger steamers until eighteen ninety. Then he was looking after the floating equipment of the Norfolk and Western Railroads uh, floating equipment, whatever that means. Um, maybe there was. Canals as part yes, of the yes. yeah that that's the only thing I can think of or you know portages across rivers. Well, actually, there's then says after the railroad sold the fleet, <laughs> <laughs> he became uh, one of the founders of a bank, and he stayed there till he retired in 1917, and he also was a very active member of the um, Confederate veterans yes. to the point where he was elected Grand Commander of the Grand Camp in the Department of Virginia. Oh, okay. Probably they would all go off and camp together. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. okay. Yes. Well, now, now um, Midshipman Mason, John Thompson Mason, who um, we had so much uh, enjoyment reading his uh, his journal um, over over the months. Um, now he he quite quite a lot of the officers I think decided we never want to go to sea again. You know, uh-huh. after being around the world, I think it was a little bit like you know, Charles Darwin who went around the world. And then got back home and went, okay, I'm never going to see again. Okay, right. So um, along with um, Deputy Minor Scales, um, John Thompson Mason um, basically uh, became a lawyer, trained as a lawyer, and apparently was a, a brilliant success. Mm. Apparently he had a, had a fantastic career. Um, he, just not on board ships anymore. Just not on board ships anymore. And he... Um, 
but he, look, he didn't have a terribly long life. He, he, um, so he was um, born in um, 1844, and he died in, in 1901. So he mm-hmm. died died age 57. So I'm, I'm sure he got to read all of the later books of uh, you know Dickens, Anthony Trollope, and uh, well, let's uh, hope so. Let's hope so. And he was um, now his sister, so Kate Mason Rowland. So he was from a very very well known family. But his sister was an American author, historian, genealogist, biographer, editor, and historic preservationist. Rowland is best known for authoring what is widely considered the definitive biography of her great-great-granduncle, George Mason, a founding father of the United States, which means, of course, that... um, uh, one of Mason's great 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 granduncles mm. was also the same founder of the United States. And there's and, a George Mason University now in Virginia. Uh, yes, so obviously it, well, it does make him a bit hard to research because there there are you know um, like Colin McKenzie. Yes, there, there are, no, no, actually no, it's the opposite of Colin McKenzie because there, there seems to be very few Colin McKenzies around, whereas there are amazing amounts of John Masons. Um, so, um, Rowland volunteered for the Confederate States Army during the American Civil War. She served as a nurse at Camp Windsor Hospital. In 1865, after the Confederate government abandoned Richmond, Rowland, then a matron at the Marine Hospital, sang patriotic songs to hospitalised soldiers. So when, when, when our John Mason was worrying about, about his family back home, she was rousing the troops with song oh, and, um, and they, yes. they went on, they went on quite well. Um, yes, his brother Tom, who he also worried about in his journal, um, also you know, survived the war quite nicely. Now, um, as, as Curry, Curry notes, um, only two of the C.S. Shenandoah's lieutenants, Francis Chu and Sidney Spistley, never publish recollections about the voyage. I, I would suggest for somewhat different reasons. I think Sidney Spistley was a very private person. I think perhaps with his own particular demons. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, Chu settled in Missouri to raise a family and aside from an incomplete attempt to write his autobiography, did little to attract public notice before his death at 52 years of age in 1893. Unfortunately, the contents of Chu's autobiography addressed to his children do not cast much light upon the voyage of the CSS Shenandoah as they finished in 1863, oh. when he when Chu died. So the the one interesting part of Chu's life, um, he did not write down because he died before his memoirs were completed. And uh, then, then um, the post-war life of Sidney Smith Lee is something of a mystery. Yes, there you go. Um, mm. Although I be- believe you have a little bit more about, uh, about Smith Lee and indeed about uh, Lieutenant Chu. Yes, uh, Chu and uh, Grimble actually went uh, also south. Funny about far that. South. But, but not quite as far south as Argentina. No, no, they just went to Mexico to establish a plantation there. Uh, and let uh, me guess. given that slavery had been abolished in Mexico, maybe they didn't have the requisite skills because, uh, as described here, the Mexican enterprise was a failure. Funny about that. And... Uh, Grimble returned in uh, January 1867 to Charleston, and then he moved on to study law and became a lawyer. And then eventually he did be set up a plantation, but this time it was in South Carolina, and he grew rice. 
Well, I think it was probably good that he didn't grow cotton, but uh, yes, I, I think he, I went, he went he went back to a place he knew about, and uh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and quite possibly, if, if he was a lawyer, it might have been something the, along the lines of a hobby farm. Yeah. Yes, yes. Meanwhile, um, Doctor Lining, um, he came back to the United States as well in 1874. But, but he actually time. had a, a somewhat successful career in South America. Well, yeah, he'd been that government surgeon, but he, he came back um, and practised medicine then until he died Okay, and in, he d- in Kentucky. And he died in 1897. Yes. And if you look online, uh, Charles E. Lining, um, he is one of the, um, the Civil War soldiers where you can get a, a view of his grave. Oh. And, uh, yes, and, and, and look, I'm, I'm very much thinking it's the same Charles E. Lining because it's got a picture of our Charles E. Lining, and I'm, I'm hoping that they have been whoever... Made the connection, did did so correctly. So Smith um, Lee, um, yes. who came back from Argentina with Whitley in eighteen sixty eight, uh, became a farmer briefly, but then um, perhaps again because uh, farming was not in his blood, he became the captain of the steamer Ironsides, and uh, eventually died in eighteen eighty eight, and was buried in the Lee family plot. Eighteen eighty eight, Virginia. He would have been. Well, perhaps the youngest apart from Cornelius Hunt, and Cornelius yeah. Hunt died, died in Egypt fighting um, fighting as a um, as a soldier. Um, so yes, uh, yeah. Well, again, as Curry said, Sidney Lee demonstrated none of his brother's desire for a public life, and remains a missing link in the story of the CSS Shenandoah's yeah. officers. Maybe he just decided everybody else in my family is famous. I can't be asked. So yeah. so there was a dinner. Uh, at Mason's home in 1893. Wow. Mm. And, uh, yeah, various officers were invited. Uh, and, of course, uh, Waddell was, was dead by then, so, so they, they didn't have to invite him. Yeah, so instead they badmouthed him, and I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll read about that. Um, unfortunately, Whittle wasn't able to come, but that's perhaps good for us because um, there's a letter that was written okay. about the dinner. And apparently they sat around and they were leafing through Mason's logbook, which was to be entertaining. <laughs> And reminisced about the crews and, and their, their fun times in Argentina. And Oral Brown wrote to Whittle, You were, during the cruise of the ship, the real commander of her in many tight places, and at times you were the only man who could have directed Waddell. And then he reminded Whittle that you are now the senior officer of the crew. Ah, oh, yes. As, as... So uh, the, the, the fighting and caterwauling between the first officer and the captain continues on even after the captain's death. So, in fact, Whittle ended up outliving um, most of the Shenandoah's officers except Scales, who died in uh, May 1920, and Grimble, who died on Christmas Day in 1923. Um, Whittle himself died in January 1920. And uh, I'm... I'm just going to quote the uh, the final line of the introduction here of the Shenandoah, a memorable cruise, which uh, his, is his story. And the, the editors, Alan Harris and Anne Harris, have written um, that when Whittle died on the 5th of January 1920, the Virginian pilot and Norfolk landmark, which was the name of a newspaper... I think there must have been a Virginian pilot and a Norfolk landmark that amalgamated <laughs> at some point. Proclaimed that no other son of Norfolk made such a record in the war between the states as did Captain Whittle. <coughs> Excuse me. Whittle's Civil War journal and letters and those of his fellow officers indicate that they all agreed with Whittle that the voyage of the Shenandoah was a 
and I'm going to do air quotes in front of the uh, microphone, a memorable cruise, which um, is what the name of this journal is. A, a memorable cruise indeed. Well, that, that would be a wonderful place to finish, Michael, except we, we've still got a couple a couple more. Um, now, Dabney Scales, would you believe Dabney Scales became a lawyer? <coughs> Funny about that. Um, and um, very interestingly, um, he refused to swear an oath of allegiance to the United States as a matter of principle. It was felt that to do so admitted some sense of guilt or regret regarding his actions during the Civil War. However, Scales repeatedly demonstrated his own sense of state and national duty. The former Confederate naval officer served a term in the Tennessee Senate during the (coughs) Spanish-American War in 1898 at the age of 56. Scales volunteered and became a captain in the Tennessee National Guard. And I'm sure he would have told himself that the Tennessee National Guard was not a... A federal institution, but he would have been kidding himself, um, I, I have to say. And um, oh, there was there was one more, um, one more thing I'd just like to say. In 1893, the Atlanta Constitution published an article based on a reporter's interview with Dr. Francis J. McNulty, a resident of Boston. In essence, Dr. McNulty's account is similar to those given by the Cruiser's lieutenants, although the article also includes several inaccuracies. This article provoked the CSS Shenandoah's other surgeon to formulate a response. Oh, dear. Dr. Charles Lining, a resident of Tennessee, wrote to correct inaccuracies in what purported to be the reminiscences of Dr. McNulty. Now, perhaps somewhat wisely, Dr. Lining did not actually finish the letter and it was published many years after the surgeon's death by friends who found the letter among Dr. Lining's personal papers. Oh, so that's just like writing an email and keeping it in <laughs> yeah, drafts. Yeah, and he just went oh, he probably decided that, that, that McNulty had given him enough aggro in his life so he just let that uh, yeah uh, <laughs> let that yeah. go through. But yes even even in, uh, you know, even decades later Dr McNulty was quite capable of uh, very much uh, annoying his, his fellow surgeon. And of course, not not just decades later, but 150 uh, years later, um, what of um, the other, I guess, main characters in, in this whole story? And that, that is, of course, is the whales. We have as the, uh, the subtitle of this podcast, Confederate Pirates Save the Whales. And yes, the contention is that the depredations of the Shenandoah did, in fact... Uh, help contribute to the fact that we still have whales swimming around in the ocean today to be saved from, I guess, Japanese whalers. <laughs> but uh, if, if, if they hadn't did what, did what they did, maybe there wouldn't be. Um, just at the very time that the Shenandoah was uh, out there sinking the new Bedford whaling fleet, um, all of a sudden a new form of uh, lighting had yes. been uh, discovered. Uh, was that the miracle wonder substance paraffin? Kerosene. Oh, in kerosene. Fact. Okay. Yes. yes. Um, Eric J. Dolan's book *Leviathan* has mm. a very good chapter describing uh, mm. the circumstances. But uh, this amazing black stuff was coming out of the ground, and they finally found a use for it in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Oh, that's what you could just say Texas, but uh, that Pennsylvania will also do. It yeah. started in it started in Pennsylvania, and uh, this black ooze was petroleum, which could be turned into all sorts of useful things. Uh, it, it couldn't be turned into ladies' corsets, which may have... Uh, uh, well, I'm sure these days we could. I'm sure I'm sure you get, there are plastic ladies' corsets aplenty. Yeah, there, uh, there probably yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But uh, American whaling never actually recovered from uh, what happened during the Civil War. Yes. So as we know, the Shenandoah uh, captured about 24 vessels that were whalers. Yep. yep. Up in the... Uh, up in the Arctic and burned most of them, so they weren't going to be useful anymore. We did talk in a previous episode about the Great Stone Fleet, yes. where uh, they sent a whole lot of obsolete whalers down to, uh, with the idea of sinking them at the mouth of Charleston Harbour. Um, and if you remember in the story, uh, when the Southerners saw this great fleet coming down, they sent their own ships out and sunk them to stop the fleet coming in. They thought it was an invasion. So they were sunk elsewhere. Um, that proved to be a, a expensive failure, but not before they went back to New Bedford and bought up a whole lot of other whalers to send down as, uh, as the blockade Excellent. ships. And by that stage... Up there in the north, they, they were even sending reasonably new whaling ships down because I guess cash in hand was better than... C- cash than in hand is always good, especially when there's some, uh, some bad southerners off sinking everybody. Yes. Um, so that, that essentially meant there weren't any whalers. Uh, in fact, there were very few of them after the war, and there's only one left now that uh, we talked yes. about in a the, previous the, episode. The Charles W. Morgan, yep. yes. Which the... we would love to go and see one day in Mystic. Yes, yes, Mystic Connecticut. Uh, but uh, yes, so... So, um, you so know. this basically meant that uh, the whaling industry never recovered. Yep. And uh, because there weren't whalers out hunting after whales, it gave them a chance to replenish their numbers. Until after the Second War, when, when the Japanese started uh, started hunting them. But but anyway, there are still, still whales out there in the southern and the Arctic oceans. And all the other oceans in between, yes. Yes, so. yes. And I believe there was, um, in, a, in an odd historical echo of the, the case of the Shenandoah, um, there were some blue whales that, because normally blue whales swim around the world, but um, there were some blue whales that decided, I think, 20 or 30 years ago, that they'd swim around Sri Lanka. Oh. And due to the long-running civil war in Sri Lanka, they haven't been predated upon for 30 years. So there is now a very nice population of Admittedly very confused, blue whales. Swoop. Swooping in a very small circle. Swooping in a very small circle Gosh, going... the world's got smaller, they <laughs> Remember when we were young and the world was yeah. so big? <laughs> so finally, uh, Rob, the fate of the Shenandoah Oh, itself. yes. And so, this so, is a bit ignominious in it, the end. It is, yes, yes. So um, initially, the, the plan was the United States... It became United States government property again. And it was going to be sailed uh, back to the United States. And then somebody opened a fresh can of can't be asked, I presume. No, and, uh... no, what happened is they went out in the ship. And even though, as uh, Whittle had very proudly said that it had gone all the way around the world without losing a spar, about a day out from Liverpool, it got caught in some bad weather and lost a whole lot of spars. Oh, well, obviously. Obviously, the Confederates were better sailors than, than the Yankees. Yes, yeah. so uh, it turned around and came back. So it was then stuck in um, Liverpool for a while, and the United States government then opened the can of can't be asked and decided to sell the ship. Yep. And it was sold, interestingly... Uh, given that uh, it was sold to a uh, country that still, in fact, did practice slavery, it was sold to the Sultan of Zanzibar. Okay. And uh, Zanzibar is an island off East Africa. Yep. It used to be uh, 
the, the Sultanate of Oman and Zanzibar used to be uh, there used to be a maritime empire that ran all the way down the coast of East Africa and then up into Arabia. And uh, at uh, some point in the 19th century, it split, and the Omanis went one way, and the people in Zanzibar went the other with their own sultan. And the sultan there decided he needed his own uh, personal yacht. And that's what the Shenandoah became. Probably, I'm presuming, because of the uh, copious number of flush toilets. <laughs> yeah, I think the flush toilets would certainly have that would have That would have helped uh, helped sell matters. So uh, it became known as the Al-Majid. Uh, named after himself, because it's good to be the, the, the sultan. It's good to be the sultan. Um, yeah, so Zanzibar... <laughs> Basically, its economy was based around the East African slaves trade. So it, it is a bit ironic that that's where the Shenandoah ended up being sold by the uh, the Union, who just defeated <laughs> Shenandoah and uh, its crew and, and all they stood for in a war against slavery. So as the Al-Majidi, it existed as this, uh, this pleasure craft, I guess you could say, for a number of years and was eventually wrecked. Um off the coast of Zanzibar in a storm in 1872, and uh, the current whereabouts of the wreck is not known, although wouldn't it be wonderful if they if they found it one of these days? I'm sure whales um, swim past it every <laughs> once in a while and give their thanks, if, they, if only they knew. They're not those whales from Sri Lanka, they're a bit far away. <laughs> so there we have it, Rob. We've done our circumnavigation of the globe, and we've told the story of the Shenandoah. <sighs> As we said, we, we'll probably have a couple of follow-up episodes later um, but I think they'll be along the line of you know Christmas specials, so yes. they're, they're, they're not part of the the main season of, of the show. But um, the fifty two yeah. episodes that we've had of the of the journey. Well, <clears throat> I hope our listeners have enjoyed uh, hearing the story as much as we've told it. Yes. It's been a a fascinating farcical tale, I think, yes, of a yes. of a round the world journey that resulted in the destruction of the whaling fleet. Yes. Uh, not a, not a single casualty. There, there were a couple of crew that died of uh, natural causes or, or older injuries, but they didn't actually hurt anyone, and they saved a lot of whales. Uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely excellent. And it's been a, it's been a wonderful journey uh, on the sea of stories. I just, uh, oh, I, in some ways I don't want it to end, and in other ways we're up to 39 minutes and 50 seconds, and I think, I think we actually do have to end it. So for perhaps not quite the last time, but for the, for the last time for the main series, this has been Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales. I'm still Rob. I'm still Mob, and I'm going to say tally-ho. And ahoy.